0: So there, um, there is a saying among preachers that um, that you should write your message um, with the Bible in one hand and with the newspaper in the other, and the idea is that you 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 are using the the tools of the faith to shed light on what's going on in the world today. So that's that's the saying. It goes back to a, a theologian named Karl Barth, um, who was a, a big theologian in the middle of the last century, and. Um, I have never done that. I mean, I've tried, but it's, it's very hard because when Karl Barth uh, came up with that idea, uh, a newspaper came out daily. But today we have a news cycle where everything is, is flying along at breakneck speed. You know, if I, if I had written a sermon about, about, you know, submersibles or something like that because it was in the news not that long ago, you know, it, people have already moved on. You know, we've moved on. Coups in Russia. You know, it's like the 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 news cycle is just too fast, so we can't we can't keep up. Or at least, if I if I am going to spend any time working on a sermon, I I can't keep up. So um, that's that's the normal case. But today, I actually can. the The news cycle has has benefited me in a way that that my sermon actually aligns with what's going on out there in the world. And the 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 topic I want to touch on today is affirmative action. Um, did anybody not hear that the Supreme Court um, made a ruling that related to affirmative action this week? So it has been it has been all over the news, and um, it's it's an interesting problem. I mean, it's it's an important question to to ask. Uh, the the two, two universities, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, had implemented um, affirmative action programs, and they were sued because the the the, the question was you were trying to to, um, uh, to to maintain diversity at your university, but you're you're ignoring the protections for um, equality, and you know you can argue you know did the Supreme Court get that right or not? Lots of people are arguing about that, but it's an interesting question because because those are both goals we have. We have a goal in our society that that diversity would be honored and recognized, but also that people would be treated equally. And the problem with that is it's difficult to do both you know it's very obvious people are different i'm looking out into this room and i'm only seeing one pair of twins so everybody is different <laughs> right? so you know we're all different everybody is different i can even tell the twins apart people are people are unique we're all we're all different we've all got different characteristics um, we we come from different places we've got different uh histories we've got different um, ethnicities we've got different sexes There's a lot of ways people are different. The diversity is not the problem. The diversity is the equal, I mean, the problem is the equality. That, that we, we want there to be equality even though we recognize people are all different. So, so, um, the, 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 the idea of, um, affirmative action programs is some attempt to make that work. To, to have, um, diversity and to, to honor equality at the same time. So, so um, that's all I want to say about those programs. Like I said, uh, you will have no trouble finding people who can share their opinions with you on that case, pro and con. So I don't want to go any further with that, but I do want to ask the question, why? why? Why do we do that? I mean, you know, the diversity is very obvious. People are different. That's, that's, you could just look around. But equality, why do we believe that people are equal? You know why? Why do we do that? Why should we? Why, why should we think that people have some fundamental equality when they're so obviously different? Well, you know, this is the Fourth of July weekend, and we know that um, Thomas Jefferson said, writing about today, it was about the second that he wrote this. Um, he wrote that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So, to him. It was perfectly obvious. I don't even need to explain it. All men are created equal. You don't even have to. You don't. You know, to ask the question is to answer it because, duh, of course all men are equal, right? That's what he said uh, two centuries ago. But it has not always been self-evident. If we look at the ancient world, for example, uh, nobody in the ancient world thought it was evident. Um, the uh, the Greeks famously they had the idea of democracy. Everybody gets an equal vote. In, in the way that the, the world works, right? How things work, right? But if you look at the demos, the, the demos in democracy, well, the demos was male, adult, free citizens. So if you were in any other group than, than that you know, tiny little subset of all the Venn diagrams, right? This little group of, of male, adult, free citizens. Then you didn't get a vote, right? Because people are different. It's not equality. You're different. You don't get a vote. And of course, the Greeks also came up with the word, um, aristocracy, the rule of the best. And a lot of the times, it was an aristocracy and not a democracy. So even the democracy was too democratic for them. So, so they didn't believe in, in, uh, equality. And neither did the Romans. The Romans, they, they invented words like a patrician and plebeian, or plebeian, um, that we still use today. We talk about the proletariat. They had very rigid class distinctions in Rome that were impermeable. There was no way to go from one class to the next. They had rankings. There were the, the senatorial rank and the equestrian rank. There were people who could go to office, and there were those who could not. There was all kinds of stratification in the Roman world. And, of course, famously, the big the big stratification, the most important one of all, was, are you a citizen? Because if you're not a citizen, you're nobody. If you're not a citizen of Rome, you, you don't belong to the civis. You are literally uncivilized. They they had this concept. They actually borrowed a word from the Greeks, who invented the word barbarian to mean, you're not part of us. You're one of those people. They didn't believe that everybody was equal. And you know the Jews were not immune. If we if we uh, read the, the Bible, we see that that they believed, um, and the Bible declares that they were the special people of God. And the way that they interpret that is, if we're the special people of God, if God has given us Torah, if God has guided us with His law, then everybody who didn't get that, well, they are sinners. So so they would talk about the Gentiles, or, or literally they would say the goyim, the the goys, the nations. All those other people out there, they don't have the law. They're, they're no better than sinners. So this is the way that people saw things in the first century. It was self-evident to them that people were not equal. But 1,700 years later, it was self-evident they, that they were. When Thomas Jefferson wrote those words, all 56 signers of the Declaration agreed. They put their John Hancocks on the line. So what changed? What changed? How how did we go from not at all self-evident to self-evident? Well, this is a church, and I'm a preacher, so you can guess what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the answer is Jesus. And in particular, I'm going to tell you the understanding of what Jesus did that we see in places like our reading today in Galatians 3. Paul describes um, his understanding of what it was that Jesus accomplished that is why we now believe that equality is self-evident. Pardon me. So, let's, um, let's go ahead and look at this uh, letter. So, what's going on in Galatians 3? Um, if you weren't here previously, you can catch up online, but briefly... Paul has been dealing with this problem that arose because he and his his uh, friend or uh, traveling companion Barnabas had gone around the Mediterranean world and they had passed through the the southern part of Asia Minor uh, a region called Galatia and they told people the good news about what Jesus had done what what God had done through Jesus and a lot of them became Christians they said that sounds like a great thing I want to be part of that and they became Christians and that rose that 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 caused the question to arise well okay so now they're Christians should they obey torah should they become Jews should they start following the Jewish law and you know it makes sense because remember the 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 Jews had that law god gave them his law and made him his special people if you're going to be a christian shouldn't you be part of god's special people that was the question that they were asking and paul said, no. In fact, he said, you foolish Galatians. He said, who has bewitched you? Paul was not at all happy with that idea. He said, "He said it's not just a no, but a stop being such a dummy no. So (laughs) Paul was pretty clear on that. And I think maybe at this point, as we pick things up in verse 15, Paul's realizing he's going to have to dial back the rhetoric a little bit because he starts by saying, brothers and sisters, right? We're all friends. You know, I may have just used some strong language, but don't forget, you know, we all love each other. So he says, brothers and sisters, I'll use an example from human experience. No one ignores or makes additions to a validated will. The the idea is you have this last will and testament, and, you know, until until you die, you can go wheedle grandpa and hope that, you know, he'll change the arrangements, right? But once once it's been through probate, once it's validated, that's it. And you may not be happy with what grandpa did, but but there it is. Nobody gets to just set aside what the will says. So Paul says, we all understand this. This is just the way wills work. And he said, it's the same way with the covenant that God made to um, to Abraham, that you don't just get to set, it, set that aside. He says, the promises that were made to Abraham and his uh, were made to Abraham and his descendant. He's saying that the covenant that God made included these promises— and you don't get to set aside that covenant any more than you would set aside a, a human will. So, it says, the promises were made to Abraham and his descendant, so who is descendant? There's there's a problem, right? It doesn't. It, this is kind of you read this and go, I'm not sure I follow that. And the reason is because the the word here is difficult to translate. It's not. It's not at all difficult to translate. It's the word seed and um it means descendants or in other translations they'll say offspring so the problem is that at least in our translation they used a, they used a word that means one you know a descendant is one and what paul's talking about is you know, the seed of Abraham is the entire family tree, starting with Abraham and going down. That's the seed of Abraham. So it's a collective group. It's the name of a group. And offspring kind of works like that. But descendant really, it, we kind of get a little odd there. What's what's going on with that? So so if we read this um, and, and we replace it with a collective word like offspring or family, here's, here's what it says. It says, the promises were made to Abraham and his family. It doesn't say, and to the families— as if referring to many rather than just one. It says, and to your family, who is Christ. So not multiple families, but the family, the one family of the children of Abraham. So so that is the picture that Paul's saying, that, that that was the deal that God made. That's the covenant. You don't get to set it aside. Now, we immediately have another problem, which is we don't usually think of Christ as a group. We think of Jesus, right? One man, fully God, fully human, you know, uh, you know, born of a virgin. You know all, all the things we believe about Christ, right? But Paul, for Paul, Jesus, when when he says Christ, he doesn't simply mean the man God Jesus. He means all those who are in Christ. You see it all through Paul's writings. He talks about being in Christ or of Christ or with Christ, and that's what he's saying. Is uh, he talks about he talks about the, the body of Christ? We're members, right? We're we're the the arm or the leg or the foot or the nose or the spleen. Of the body of Christ. Each person is a member of the collective thing that is the body of Christ. So, so he says, it refers to just one and your family who is the body of Christ, who is this collective thing that is Christ. So, he says, I'm saying this, the law, which came 430 years later. So, Abraham is, is, uh, is, uh, taking place, who knows, 1500, 1600 BC. And then 400 years later, the law is given to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's later. You don't get to just go change things that were in the promise, right? The law has a purpose, and he's going to talk about that, but it can't simply invalidate what God has already promised to Abraham. So he says um, it doesn't invalidate the agreement that was previously validated by God so that it cancels the promise. He says if the inheritance were based on the law... It would no longer be from the promise. If the way that you were set right with God was based on your obedience to the law, then you would no longer, the promise wouldn't mean anything to you, right? So he's saying God did not simply swap out the covenant the promise with the law. So why was the law given? He says it was added because of offenses. So what does he mean by that? Well, there's a lot of opinions and... Um, the, the the basic idea or the, the thing that everybody agrees is that uh, nobody there's never everybody agrees but the the most uh, common um, thinking on this seems to be that the Israel the nation of Israel the Jews did not, uh, you know, they were God's special people, but they didn't really behave that way. They were basically as bad as everybody else, right? You know, you don't, you know, suddenly working your way through life, not doing all the wrong things doesn't become easier because you've got the law. In some ways it actually becomes harder. So he says the, the law was given because of offenses. The people God was going to use to bring about his covenant promises weren't any better than anybody else. So there had to be some way of dealing with the offenses, So, so he, you know, and this is where people get into really some some deep questions about what the law did for them, and you know, there's it's kind of like the affirmative action. There's lots of opinions about it, Um, but he says the the important thing for him is that it's temporary. Whatever it is, he says it was a temporary thing. It arrived after the after the promise, and as he says, it's not a permanent thing. He says. Is the law against the promises of God? No. The the law has a function, but it cannot give life. It cannot change the human heart. The law regulates, but it doesn't change people. It can't give life. And because of that, the righteousness cannot come from the law. So he says, so what is the purpose of the law? He says, well, whatever it is, however you interpret the, the other verses he's got here and elsewhere, he says, the important thing is it was temporary. It had one function. The scripture locked up all things under sin so that the promise based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. Before faith came, we were guarded under the law, locked up until faith that was coming to be revealed. So the law would become, became our custodian until Christ so we might be made righteous by faith. So the guard, the, the language here is really kind of, you know, if you remember, Paul is a Pharisee by, by origin. Um, for him to call the law a prison would have been very unusual. So he says the law is a prison. And so what he's meaning is not just, you know, you're doing hard time. He means, he means it's protective custody, right? No one can get into that prison and harm you because you're in protective custody. The law functions that way. And then he says the law is like a custodian. The word for custodian, Means uh, somebody who would accompany a child around town or whatever to keep them out of trouble. So we w- we might say today a babysitter. So the law is a babysitter, it takes care of you until you mature. But he says now now that faith has come, we don't need a babysitter anymore. We don't need a custodian. Now the problem with this is that these these images a babysitter and and a, um, a, a lockup. Um, uh, protective custody or not. They're kind of negative images. And so people tend to say, well, you know, the law is a bad thing. And Paul's saying, no, the law is a good thing. And so I was, I was intrigued by this picture that, um, that, uh, NT Wright, he's an Anglican bishop. He, he had a different image. He said, he said, it's kind of like with rockets. (laughs) If you, if you look at, you know, rockets going into space, what they often have is they've got multiple stages. And so the first stage gets you off the ground. And then once you're pretty high up, you drop that off behind you, right? So the, the first stage goes away and then the second stage takes you further, right? He says the law is like that. It did its job. It's perfectly good, but we're dropping it off behind us now. It's not, we're not going to carry that with us because the law has, has achieved its function. It got us into orbit or, you know, whatever, whatever image, right? So he says that's what the law is like. It's something you, that, that serves a purpose, but it's a temporary thing. So he says, The law is like that. Faith has now come. We don't need stage one. We don't need a custodian. We don't need to be locked up any longer. So he's coming to the end of this section. And as he does, notice the number of times he says in Christ, in the family of Christ. So look at what he says. He says, you are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. So, what what scholars think he might be referring to there? Um, baptism is the is the public ceremony of identification. Right, I have I have put my trust in Jesus, and then I get baptized. After that, as a sign, as a public sign, that I am um, a Christian, that I have put my trust in Jesus. And he says that that is kind of like something that they did in the ancient world. If you imagine that, that, you know, junior Roman citizen, you know, little Julius, right? And he's, he's accompanied by this, this custodian who keeps him out of trouble, right? But one day, Julius, you know, whatever the age was, 18, 15, whatever they did in those days, right? At some point, he becomes official legal adult. And when that would happen, you know, and again, they were very class conscious, sex conscious, et cetera, for, for a man who became An adult, he would put on the toga virilis, the toga of a man. So he would finally get to wear, we would say, he put on his big boy pants, right? So he's no longer wearing the little, you know, knickerbockers or whatever, you know, you've got to wear as a kid. He's wearing the big boy pants. He's wearing his toga. He is clothed with adulthood. And Paul is saying that all of you who are baptized, all of you who went through that ceremony that initiation ceremony of identification with Christ, have been clothed with Christ. You're mature. You don't need a babysitter anymore. And so he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is male, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That you're all different, but you're all one. There's, you know, all kinds of people, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, etc. all kinds of people but you're all one in Christ. You are all part of the family of Christ. And if you belong to Christ, if you're in Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You are the fulfillment, collectively the church is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. So that is what Paul is saying. That's his idea. That like every family, right, you know, you know what families are like. You've been to Thanksgiving dinner. There's all kinds of people. There's Grandpa there's you know the the cousins there's there's all the people who are part of the family there's you know the crazy uncle with the weird political beliefs there's there's you know the the black sheep that we don't talk about what happened after you know until later there's the prodigal son there's people in the family all kinds of people all kinds of stories they're all different but they're all one family Paul says that's What Christianity is like. That when, when Jesus returns, there will be Christians from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because we are all one family. So what do we do with this? Well, we live it out, right? We live it out as Christians. And, and the, the the idea here is that you don't know who's baptized. I mean, you know, you might check with the church rolls to see, you know, who is innocent. And by the way, if you aren't, let me encourage you to do so. That is the ceremony where you, where you put on your big boy pants. So let me encourage you to be baptized if you aren't. But the point is, you don't know. You go to Costco, you don't know if somebody there is baptized or not. So you have to assume everybody is part of the family that is Christ. So we treat people as part of the family. We treat people as equal, even though we know they're all different. This is, this is what Christianity brought to the world, this idea, yes, keep your diversity. You don't have to become Jews. You don't have to start doing everything we do and start looking like us and, and behaving like us. You Keep your diversity. Be who you are. But we will treat you as one of us. We will, we will include you in our family. You are part of our group, even though you're different. This was the big idea that Christianity gave to the world. And because because of our national history, that's where our country got the idea. That's how it became self-evident. And the problem for us is simply to act like it, to to act like we believe it, to recognize the diversity in everybody. Say, yeah, crazy Uncle Fred, you know, with those weird ideas, you know, the moon is made of green cheese, whatever it is, to say, you know what? family. Let's be that kind of church. Let's recognize people's diversity and their equality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you have made this whole world, and it is so full of rich diversity. Um, everybody, everything reflects the the splendor that is you, that, that cannot be um, captured in any one person. Lord, help us to appreciate that all of us bear your image. And however badly it's been marred or disfigured in this world, that because of Christ, everyone can be part of your family. Everybody can be baptized into the family that is Christ. Help us to live as if we believe that, treating everyone as family despite all of their diversity. Pray this in the name of Christ, the head of of the body that is his family, amen.